Hi, this is Kara Swisher. For companies to succeed today, they need builders, and builders need tools that allow them to innovate. The problem is most cloud vendors don't offer the range of tools builders are looking for. Amazon Web Services gets what it takes to build what's never been built before because that's what Amazon Web Services is doing every day. Amazon Web Services is a leading cloud provider giving builders the reliability and security they need. Amazon Web Services was the first to introduce cloud computing over 10 years ago. That helps everyone from the smallest startups to the biggest global enterprises build their own applications and manage their workloads. By listening to what builders want, Amazon Web Services is adding more features and services than any other cloud provider while consistently reducing prices. So if you'd rather focus on building a business over building an infrastructure, check out podcast.aws. To learn about how Amazon Web Services can help you build a better future today, let the builders build. That's podcast.aws. This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That's me. It's powered by Digital Media. I'm here with Ian Schaefer. Hello, Ian. Hey, that's me. Hi. That is you. Before we get into your introduction, I want to say hello to any first-time visitors who are coming to us, maybe because they heard Rush Limbaugh talk about us. Maybe they read about us on Reddit over the weekend. So, so welcome. We don't talk about Trump all the time on this podcast. Today may be a Trump light podcast, so just be warned. Also, uh, Rush Limbaugh spent a lot of time talking about this podcast last week. He, he described uh, this blog, Recode, and I guess this podcast is anti-Trump, pro-Obama, pro-leftist, insanely so. Some of those things might be right. So anyway, welcome to any new listeners. Um, we're glad to have you aboard, and welcome to Ian. Thanks. Ian, tell us what you do for a living. Sure. I am the the founder and CEO of a uh, ad agency called Deep Focus. You are a second ad guy that we've had on this podcast in 2017. Yeah, sorry. We spent No, it's good. We spent a lot of time talking about media, and, and I think a lot of people who do what I do for a living write about media never spend a lot of time talking about where the money comes from. Mm-hmm. We tend to not talk to people who actually buy and sell advertising very much. It's a, it's a big failing on our part, um, in part because it's difficult to talk to you guys sometimes. You're very good at talking, which is one of the reasons I'm glad you're here. Yeah. Um, a lot of guys use real sort of obfuscatory language. Yeah, they, they try to hide the source of their information and, and or just try to throw you off the scent. Yeah, or, or they just won't speak cleanly and clearly. So your job is to speak cleanly and clearly about what you do for a living and how you're doing it. But your job is to take money from people like Pepsi, Pepsi a client? Yeah, to be the PepsiCo, client. yeah. And, and you put it into digital specifically. You are a digital-only guy, right? Increasingly beyond that. Beyond so, that. Yeah, so it's not – we may you not started be – started as a digital agency. Yeah, we, we may not be buying television advertising per se, but we are making advertising that winds up on television, in some cases explicitly for television. I would just say we make stuff for screens. You make stuff for screens because you don't want to limit yourself. So this is your own company. You founded it when? I founded it in 2002. Long time ago. You sold it? I sold it in uh, in 2010 to a, a company called Engine. Now, normally what happens in your business, I know this part, you start an agency, sell it to a bigger company, you then hate your life. But mm-hmm. you've got to stick around for a year or two years. It never works out, but you get paid out, and then you leave, and maybe you never go back into advertising. But you sold this company six, seven years ago, so yeah. I guess I'm, it's working I'm out. I'm still there. Yeah, my soul's intact, um, which was really one of the deciding factors in deciding where to go. I mean, once in the ad agency business, once you hit a certain threshold in terms of revenue, you start becoming attractive to the holding companies because what they do is they're basically a portfolio of investments. So they feel like when they can um, acquire you at a uh, at a certain revenue point and at a certain profit point, 
the reflection on their share price is multiplied. So they're saying these guys are out there doing business. We do the same business. In theory, we could go do the same business they're doing, but it's just easier to buy them in their business and bring them in. Well, yeah, and especially because you know, we have a high percentage of digital revenue. And so holding companies are oftentimes evaluated by the percentage of revenue they have that is digital um, because it's the future. Right. So for a long time, this was a novelty, right? And it wasn't a real business. Digital advertising was sort of a sidelight. And the real business was taking tonnage. It still is, really, taking tonnage, right? Yeah. Um, TV is still dominant. But over the years now, people say, oh, digital is important. If you have more of that, we're going to value you more. Well, yeah. And, and the ad spend, if you look at the trends, I mean, it, it is certainly moving towards digital. And if you look at where the growth is, it right. is entirely in digital and also, honestly, entirely Facebook and Google. So, yeah, so let's start there. Let's speak cleanly and clearly about about where digital ad dollars go, where you're spending your clients' money today. You said Facebook and Google. This is no longer a secret that these guys, there's digital advertising, which is Facebook and Google, and there's a small percentage left for everybody else. Mm-hmm. So someone comes to you today and says, I want to spend X amount of money. I want to reach X amount of people. Is your main answer, well, we're just going to divide that between Facebook and Google? Well, in- increasingly, they're, they're not just coming at us with that kind of, let's call it a brief. That's what we in the ad agency world call it. They're, they're basically coming to us with business goals, right? We need to grow this much yes. in the fourth quarter. We need to increase our sales this much. Um, but eventually, it gets translated into, we have this much to spend. Right? Yeah, absolutely. Hopefully one of the first questions we're, we're right. asking to evaluate whether or not we should even take the business. But the challenge with that is, especially with digital, is the, the money keeps getting pushed further and further down the funnel, right? So, And one of the reasons why Facebook and Which Google, means, explain the funnel. Sure. The fu- so the, fu- the top of the funnel is all of your ads that want you to remember the brand, for example. Stuff I see on TV. Yeah, register it for later. Stuff you see on TV that doesn't have a website at the bottom of the screen or 1-800 number to call. Right, a Ford ad. Sure, but not for a dealer. Right. Right. And so Ford sells cars you might want to buy one day. Right. And so, so you, one day eventually you lock it away, you hopefully you recall it. I mean, that's that old saying, I don't know which fifty percent right. of my ads are working, but fifty percent of them are. It's usually the other way around. But but you be that's the idea. And so the bottom of the funnel though is where everything is attributed to a particular action. So a click on a search result that takes you to an e commerce site where you wind up buying something. And there's a very distinct trail of breadcrumbs that leads from that click. Right. To that purchase. And the internet's very good at that. Now, Almost you, too good. Now, you can't actually, you generally don't buy a new Ford truck from the internet, right? They usually don't click on something and then up, and you don't even end up at a dealership necessarily because you clicked on something. It's well, maybe easier to attribute. So a lot of the stuff that happens with the click, right, is, is sort of smaller ticket stuff. Well, I guess the journey start might start on the internet right. now. So people are customizing their cars on the right, so you website. can get paid for sending someone to the website. Exactly. Even if they're not buying it there, you can still get attribution there. Exactly, exactly. It's not where we play as an agency, though. So mm-hmm. one, one, of the, one of the issues with being in the world of digital is that digital means a lot of different things to a yep. lot of different people. So you've got a lot of agencies that are, were built on, you know, what are called like performance marketing, right? So like search, like paid search or cost per action or cost per click advertising. And then you've got agencies that are there to kind of build a brand over a longer period of time. And honestly, it kind of just depends on the reason why you're hired to determine, you know, which kind of advertising you but, do. But generally, so where I started was Facebook and Google. You said that's the dominant yeah. that's the dominant place. So everyone knows that now that you see these statistics saying 85 cents of every new digital ad dollar, 90% of new ad spending is going to Facebook and Google. When you're deploying your client's ad money, is that does that ratio work out for you that 
80, 85, 90% of your money is going to those two companies? I would say that that's called like the drumbeat of advertising is really happening on those two properties or at least on properties that those two companies own. Because remember, like Google's got search, but it also has YouTube, yep. right? And Facebook's got, you know, the performance ads that you see in your feed or on the desktop on the side. Um, you know, right, we know you went to Zappos, come back and buy that shoe. Right, right, but they also have Instagram where you can't really even click on anything. So, you know, they're, they're playing on both sides or both ends of that funnel too. And they've just diversified their offering from advertisers to be able to make the top of the funnel work along with the bottom of the funnel. And that's the first part of their value proposition. The other part is the size of the audience that they can deliver. But I'm just going to ask one last time, like yeah, I'm yeah. interrogating you. So, so if I looked at the total amount of your client's money that you spent last yes. year, did 90% of it go to Facebook and Google? Um, I don't know if it's – I don't think it was 90%. I mean, we are – I would say it's it's probably in the 60s. 60s. Um, yeah, because one of the things that we're also usually doing is um, – and this may be a little bit of personal philosophy creeping into the agency, is I want advertisers off that kind of teat. Like, I don't, I don't want them feeling like they've got to spend all their money with Google or Facebook for a couple of reasons. One is because it leads to an overstandardization of the kind of advertising that they do. And, and the more that sense. happens, the less reason you need to be there, right? Uh, that's part of it. I mean, look, let's uh, Google and Facebook both have the equivalent of creative agencies inside of their companies. Right. They're inherently biased because they are creating ads that are meant to run on their platforms, and they, of course, are granted access to certain things that external companies aren't. This is one of the recurring problems for anyone in your business, especially yes. if someone runs a smallish business like yours, which is your clients want more efficiencies. Um, the people you're spending money on, like Google and Facebook, are trying to become ever more and more efficient, and they're sort of smushing you in the middle. And they're both saying to each other, we could just work directly, right? We don't really need Ian, or what do we need Ian for? Well, I mean, in theory, like, you know, if you look at ad agencies, ad agencies have what, if they're great, they have a 20 to 25% profit margin. I mean, Facebook and Google are awash and flush with cash. Right. So they can commoditize a service and give it away um, where we have to try really hard. Um, I'd argue that the people that have to try really hard wind up getting better at it in the long run. Um, but in the short term, there have been times when you know we've done programs, even on Google and Facebook, where we've built campaigns that leverage those platforms where we've had production work actually taken away because of what Google and Facebook were giving away to the client. Right. So we, we're going to throw this in. The yep. stuff that Ian gets paid for, the stuff that pays Ian's mortgage, yes. we're going to just throw it in as a gimme. Yes. Yes, they, they do that. It's, it's, it's rough, but it is, it is not a replacement for what we do, which is why, you know, in the agency world, just like any other, if you have any other product, you've got to differentiate yourself and figure out what, what you do is creating value and what you do is just a feature of something else. So 60-ish percent of your, of your advertising spend is going to two companies, Facebook, Google, split up between YouTube, Instagram, yep. various ad, ad platforms. Uh, where does the rest of it go? Is, what percent is Twitter getting? What percent is Snapchat getting? Who's getting the rest? Yeah, I don't know if I could fairly break it down percentage-wise to all those other platforms platforms, but what we're trying to do is... Give me the gestalt. Who's up, who's down? So I would say Snapchat is going up. Um, I would say Twitter's been flat to decreasing. Then you've got a whole batch of companies ranging from, you know, like companies like Musical.ly to We Heart It to Imager to all these other platforms that have millions of users that are spending a ton of time on the platform, but non-standardized ad formats. And are, are are your clients saying, I'd like to be on Snapchat. I'd like to be on Musical.ly. Are you saying, this is a good place for you. Let me try to figure out how to make it worth your while. Uh, it's a little bit of both. I mean, you know, it, it depends on the, <laughs> the, you know, there are some advertisers who want to make stuff for Snapchat in the same way that there are some advertisers who want to have a spot on the Super Bowl. 
right? They just like the stuff. It's a cool place to be, and some yeah. and some clients want to be there, right? Because yeah. they want to be able to say, "I was on the, I was in the Super Bowl. I did something good. Yeah, you can see my work. Yeah, totally. And and, and you know, but uh, but there's a, there is a ton of value. There's a lot of audience that's spread out on places that are not those platforms, especially younger audiences. And as as audiences get younger, it's becoming increasingly harder to reach them where everybody else is able to get reached. And I think that's this weird spot that we're in today. And frankly, like a scary place for publishers to be. Because publishers, uh, you know, are finding that audiences become commoditized. If I wanted to buy any publisher's audience, I could do that on one of either Facebook or Google. More likely, Facebook. Because the publishers no, are not Vox money Media. To you have to, Vox Media, which pays my salary. You have to go to Vox.com or Recode.net or, or the Verge.com. It's the only. It's the Our only audience place. is not replaceable anywhere else. But but you can find very similar people. And honestly, the same people on those other platforms. So um, it might not be adjacent to that content, right? Right, but it, but it's the same people. And so the, the Facebook sales pitch, and increasingly the Google sales pitch, is we know so much about the people that you're trying to reach that we're going to be the place that's best and most efficient right. at reaching them. The problem and the catch is that they own all the data. And the this has been the war between publishers and the ad tech community, in this case Google and Facebook, are in that community for five, six, seven years now, and the publishers are losing. Right? Publishers keep yeah. saying, no, 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 you can't. Forget what Ian tells you. Don't worry about finding a lookalike audience. you get, you got to be surrounded by this high-quality content. And who knows what you're going to find when you're on some garbage site. And we're going to also make something amazing for you. And every year, your advertisers say, more often, I believe you, Ian, let's go find them somewhere else. Yeah, well, so they, they do that. I think the, the other thing is, though, that publishers are not immune to, to all this in the sense that, uh, from our perspective, so publishers have their own branded content studios, yep. right, where they've built agency-like models inside to deliver integrated creative that you can't get Here, Let's, let's explain else. this to someone who's not deep in the ad business. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. so Fox Media, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, everyone yep. of any size at this point has a, has a group, pretty big group at this point in case of Fox Media, that makes their own advertising. We call it branded content. Yep. But they make right. ads. Yep. These things look sometimes like actual stories or whatever, and they're supposed to be more interesting than a regular banner. Mm-hmm. You're now competing with those guys as well. Well, at least for for like you know on a on a campaign basis, because the the challenge is that publishers don't have the same business models as Facebook or Google. They don't have the same margins, so their ability to maintain those branded content studios are not as good as those other guys. So I actually like I would if this was an oh, we're not sitting scenario. on a fire hose of, of of cash. We actually have to make money when yeah. we sell an ad. Yeah, for most publishers, especially the legacy publishers, publishers have been around for for decades. You know, I would say that they it's unsustainable. Like they can't provide agency-like services, not even at agency-like margins, at a loss in most cases for the price of getting display advertising, which is basically what it is. Um, since we're talking about ads, this is a good time to stop, pause, listen to a message from one of our fine advertisers. We'll be back in a minute. Today's show was brought to you by HostGator. Are you ready to take your website to the next level? Whether you're a first-time blogger or an experienced web pro, HostGator has all the tools you need to create a great-looking website or even an online store. If you ever need a boost in hosting power, HostGator offers cloud, VPS, and dedicated server hosting that can easily handle maximum visitor traffic. See what HostGator can do for your website. Right now, Recode listeners will get 60% off. Just visit HostGator.com slash Recode. I'm going to spell HostGator for you. It's H-O-S-T-G-A-T-O-R, like an alligator. HostGator.com slash Recode. I'm back here with Ian Schaefer. Um, hello again to anyone still listening from Reddit, Rush Limbaugh's fine podcast. If I'm holding Rush's listeners, this is awesome. This so. is awesome. 
Hi, Mom. Hi, Dad. Actually, does your mom or dad listen to Rush Limbaugh? No, not on purpose, I don't think. Yeah, I don't think I've ever heard it. So we were talking about how grim the business is for for publishers. We can talk about that every week, Um, and we'll go back to it. But I want to go back to just the the platforms. I think a lot of what people don't understand is when you see that Twitter did $2 billion last year, actually more than that, Um, Snapchat did 400, I think, last year. Maybe we'll do a billion this year. Mm -hmm. These are really big dollars to a normal person. My understanding, though, is that most of that ad money that's being spent, especially for a Snapchat, which is a new property, and even for Twitter, are people experimenting with with a new digital platform, saying, uh, let's see what Snapchat's like, add up all those ad buys, you get to a billion dollars. Right. When you're spending money on an experimental platform like, like Snapchat, which really has very rudimentary sort of data, you don't really know what you're getting, are you wary about doing that because it takes a lot of work from you and, and it's non-standard? Or are you happy to do it because it's fun and shiny and exciting? I, I mean, I think the future of our business is a non-standard stuff. So, yeah, I, I think the advertising world going forward is going to be filled with um, fewer, better ads. Um, I think the display advertising market is going to crater. And I think most of the time is going to be spent on companies that can provide a disproportionately um, interesting and valuable experience for people filled with the content that they want. And, and are really and are really big, though, right? And are, they could still be big. I just the, – the bigness of the platform doesn't need to be commensurate with the size of the ad impressions that they deliver or at least the, the, the um, frequency. I'm lost. I'm lost. What is that? What is so, um, so, for example, so, uh, you know, scrolling through Facebook, yep. like you could say that there are more ads in your feed today than there were a year ago. I mean, you definitely say that about Instagram. And the more ads that show up in those feeds, especially in a narrowly, you know, vertical screen that you see on your phone, right. the worse the experience is generally for the user. Um, so I don't, I don't, even if they're nice ads. Even if they're I, nice I ads. I didn't come to Instagram to look at the ads. Right, right. And so now, what? even in the beginning, you know, Kevin Seichram was literally approving every ad that was on Instagram because he wanted to keep some air of decency um, to mm-hmm. the platform. Those times are gone. So now you've got literally ads for everything in that Instagram feed. Um, I think going forward, um, users' tolerance of ads, and you see that everything, from, you know, from everything with ad blocking to the choices that people make in terms of what they're willing to pay for content-wise, and they're willing to pay more for content that does not have ads surrounding it, is just, you know, we've, by giving away so much stuff for free for so long, we've created an ad, in, like a, an ad economy that is bigger than it should be, in my opinion. And so the, the future will be, you know, fewer ads reaching more people but just, I think like a lower a lower frequency and better performing ones. And you're saying that there's a false ad economy. People are spending too much. Advertisers are spending too much on advertising. So that means the ad spend is going to go down over some point. That that's going to scare the heck well, out of a lot think, of people. Well, I think you're seeing that with publishers. I mean, the, if you look at there's a there's a chart that uh, Jason Kent from the from Digital Content Next, which I think used to be the yep. Online Publishers Association, yep. has been circulating. You know, which shows that you know Google and Facebook share right. of growth but, is sixty and forty. Right, right. But but that's that's not the overall ad dollars going down. That's the ad dollars shifting from the New York Times to Google and Facebook. Yes, well, and growth, like right. growth. It's not just shift; it's actually growth in spend yeah. to digital. And every everyone else is seeing a smaller percentage of that growth. And if that trend continues, those lines go like diverge. So this is what everyone is fighting for right now: is they're fighting to save that the option that is not Facebook or not Google, or or their investors are trying to get them to build a company that's big enough to get acquired by those two companies at a high enough multiple where it makes sense for everyone involved. So there's Facebook's business model is built around getting as many people as possible to spend money as easily as possible. 
Right. And that's when you get like great standardization of the content on the platform. That's where you get 20-second mid-roll ads on videos. Like that's when you get the same ad experience that we're used to buying over and over and over again. And, and when you talk to people who are investing in a company like BuzzFeed or Vox, I can think of offhand, when you portray this, it seems really grim. So why are you investing in a, in a media company, even a nimble digital media company like this? They say, well, obviously Facebook – knows that they need content from the likes of Vox Media or BuzzFeed or pick your publisher. So they're going to create an environment that allows those companies to thrive or at least work. So it's not going to be grim. They're not going to run you out of business. But if you look at everything else Facebook does, they seem to sort of say, we don't care where the content comes from as long as the user likes it. And that story from the New York Times and that picture of your dog – those are equally worthwhile to you. Or if they are, that's great. We don't care. Do you think that Google or Facebook, Facebook recently just said, oh, journalism is important to us. Do you think they have a vested interest in sort of helping publishers survive even as they're hoovering up all their ad money? They have, they have a vested interest in helping certain publishers thrive. So the publishers that are going to win going forward are going to be the ones that understand how to reach their audiences wherever they are. And increasingly, those audiences are spending time on these platforms. If your business model requires you to drive people back to a site that's surrounded by seven banner ads um, that you're selling programmatically on an ad exchange somewhere and not directly to a seller for a premium CPM, cost per thousand. If you're one of those, those guys, like, you really got to be questioning your existence. If you look at what's happening with Time, Inc., you know, they've had to like, almost strip away the brands of their publications and sell audience just to compete for the same dollars that are going to Facebook and Google. And I think that's just a... It's a death spasm. So, right, so what you're saying is, well, if you want to so work, if you want to not be in the death spasm, if you want to survive, yeah. you make stuff that's going to appear on Facebook or uh, Instagram. Or Snapchat. Right. So you build those for those or, or, new platforms. Or over-the-top platforms on television, things that can travel and don't require an anchor of a website to visit. Right. So now you're just in this world where your brand may not really mean anything because people are consuming you wherever they are. Well, it seems like that's pretty fraught. So to the contrary, the the one the platforms that are the, the publishers that are going to survive are the ones with the strongest brands. Now, I think they might have to sacrifice some reach to get there. But I think the quality of the audience multiplied by the quality of the brand in terms of reliability, in terms of coming back there uh, often, in terms of it being a brand that a, a person might identify themselves by, whether it's a, you know, a BuzzFeed, right? People like call themselves BuzzFeed readers. For a couple of years, BuzzFeed had trouble building themselves up as a brand because it was content that people kind of just stumbled onto right, but didn't go to visit. But now saw. people like, you know, have Buzz, the BuzzFeed app on their phone. Like there, there is a known quantity. People know what to expect from BuzzFeed. Um, same with Vox and the various properties that are there. Like Barstool Sports. It's fascinating to me because – Not know, a Vox property. Not yes. a Vox property. But, but, you know, unlike ESPN, I'd say there are people that love identifying themselves by like Barstool Sports in the same way that – you know, they love like Howard Stern, right? It's just a place that they go to. It's a community of people um, that they're used to seeing content from. It's very personality driven. So while they might not have the biggest sports audience, they might have the most loyal audience. And I think that should increase the amount of money advertisers are willing to pay to be associated with that content. I think I first met you, you, you did the, the Mad Men avatar thing. Yeah. So that's yeah. like 2008. Yeah. And this was very early, right? Cause early in Twitter. Um, and you guys basically allowed people to create their own Don Draper sort of stylized 1960s. Which people still have as their Twitter. like Twitter avatars and all this other stuff. Which I think the cool. story, right? Because AMC didn't want it to happen and, and shut it down. Yeah. It was, yeah. I mean, you know, um, there, there was a, um, there was an 
an artist that was, you know, initially commissioned to do some some of those drawings, and it wound up taking on right. a life of its own. And we just decided, say, like, why not just embrace this thing that's taking on a life of its own? Because right. that's what we want the series to do. And so we just kind of brought that all together and, and created an ad that traveled with the person, became something that they identified themselves by. Now, it's easier to identify yourself by, like, a Mad Men character than it is by, you know, a brand of toilet paper. So here's my question. So that took uh, – that, that, that is a win for you because I remember it still to this right. day and, and people wrote about it. On the other hand, it's Twitter and especially in 2008, I think 2007, tiny platform, uh, Mad Men itself, pretty small show. Um, you had to create all this work from scratch to do this thing that there was no sort of template for. You got So it get, you get a lot of attention for it. You probably don't reach that many people. Is that a sustainable way to do business or, or do you generally have to sort of make bigger swings and, and, and spend more money and reach more people at the same time? Well, the, the, uh, it's not always about the number of people that you reach. I mean, I think you, you saw that, um, you know, uh, I guess it was maybe a year or less than two years ago where, um, you know, the CMO of Procter & Gamble says, you know, we were, you know, segmenting our audiences too much, right? We have to get a little broader with our advertising. And, you know, that's an example of it being like, yes, more reach might be better. To the contrary, though, it it's if you're looking at being really efficient with your spending, you could look to target the right people and get those people to participate in something that in turn show other people the kinds of things that they like. So if I know that a friend of mine is um, you know a, a loyal consumer of a particular brand or product, it behooves the advertiser to do more work to make sure that the people that buy the product are also the same people that are maybe in a second degree selling that product. And that's where that's what the notion of Mad Men Yourself was. It wasn't about let's reach as many people as possible with you know what day and time Mad Men is on, but let's let's invert that. Let's take all the fans that are fans of the show and right. turn them into the ad impressions. So this is an idea that comes back into vogue, right? That, mm-hmm. that groups of committed fans of a thing, literally fans of a band, fans of a TV show, are going to go out and advocate on your behalf, and or that. Um, I might just talk about things that I like on Twitter and Facebook, and somehow that will generate value for for the the advertiser, the person person who's selling something. Um, And it seems like that always comes back to reality because it turns out most people don't want to spend time talking about products, and they don't want to read what their friends have to say about products. No, it's 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 kind of an unnatural activity. So, you know, part of the, part of the trick is making it as natural as possible. You know, from a business perspective, part of it is also saying not just working from quarter to quarter with any kind of advertiser. It's looking at, you know, one, two, three years uh, and how we're going to build a brand and how we're going to build a sustainable business over that course of time. Because most brands are playing defense, like when you look at it. Like most brands are advertising because they have to, because they've got to increase sales, because they've got competition, you know, coming from a, um, you know, a, a soda company whose cans look awesome in a Whole Foods, right? And, and people just fall in love with it and it becomes like a cult kind of brand. And then, you know, that bigger brand who maybe makes more money and sells more stuff, like they, they feel like they're, they're getting disrupted. So what we have to figure out how to do, what all agencies really have to figure out how to do in order to stay relevant over the next few years is figure out how to make brands get control of their future rather than the future be something that happens to them and get them off of that that habit of playing defense all the time. Like you can't, it's very hard to score on defense. Um, Brands that score playing offense are going to have a lot easier time going forward because they're going to make decisions that aren't just about, you know, reach and frequency on Facebook. They're going to be looking at things like user experience. So like, how do we get our products into people's hands better without relying on, you know, just Amazon or Walmart to do it all for us? We are recording this two weeks before the Super Bowl. Yep. Every year now that we have a, someone will write a story about whether or not the Super Bowl ads sold out in record time, whether or not they're selling for a record amount of money. Everyone will write a story about uh, whether or not you can stream the ads. 
and I can't remember any yet from year to year. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think that model of spending three, four million dollars for a thirty-second buy and all that attention makes sense for your clients or anyone's clients? Sometimes. So I've. Have you done one? We've done one that hasn't necessarily aired nationally. So it's interesting because you could run a Super Bowl spot regionally and still have it show up on like a mm-hmm. list of Super Bowl spots and still yeah. take advantage. You know of who it. did that? Vox Media, <laughs> which is a good. I'm yeah. telling you, it's a smart idea. They bought. They, bought, they spent like seven hundred bucks to buy an ad, and like I don't know. That would, that would be my recommendation yeah. on how to do that. Um, you know, so there, there are two interesting things about Super Bowl ads. I, I've always felt that Super Bowl ads are a bit of a relevance tax. So if you are irrelevant to consumers or you're just not relevant yet, or if you have low awareness, that is a really interesting way to gain that awareness in a short period of time. But you can't just do it and then just let it go and see what happens because your point, it's very hard to recall, you know, which ads came from which brands because when you're trying to get people's attention, if that's job number one, you're writing – skits. You're not making commercials. Right. So the vast majority of these Super Bowl ads are basically like mini performances, at least the ones not for you know, major movie studios. They're mini performances that you know have literally like a setup, a conflict, and a punchline. Right. Series of SNL skits, yeah. but they're all back to back to back right. with no break. Right. And they're not threaded together. And um, you know, they're all competing with each other for laughs um, so they can get you know, written up on that USA Today ad meter. And it winds up being a bit of a money pit because it's not just about who remembers your ad during the Super Bowl. It's who got the most views online before the right. Super Bowl. So that when you do see it on the Super Bowl, it hits you over the head with like that seventh you know, frequency. So you made a, you've used the word money pit. You're making a compelling case not to do this. Yet every year the rate for that ad goes up. Because it's scarcity, right? Because there are fewer ways to um, get everyone's attention at the same time. Um, now, especially now – than ever because everyone's consuming media on their own terms. Super Bowl is one of those last remaining moments where it's you know really the only way. It loses all value after the fact for the most part for advertisers so um, and even for the, the rights holders. So it's the kind of thing where it's, if you're not there, it's, there, there aren't any other places to go to that, get that kind of scale and get that many people paying attention to you synchronously. Um, whenever anyone talks about the future of TV and they're in your business, they say, oh, eventually we're going to have targeted advertising. So when you're sitting at home, we're going to know who you are or roughly who you are and what you spend money on and, and uh, whether or not you're in the market for a new car. And we're going to send you a ad based on those, those criteria. So I've been following this for a decade. Mm-hmm. It hasn't happened. Uh, AT&T says that's one of the reasons they're buying Time Warner. So yeah. have all this data. That's the reason Verizon supposedly is spending this money on AOL and maybe Yahoo. Is this ever going to happen? Um, it makes a lot of sense in theory. You, you would imagine that it would happen, but I think that also would lead to a shrinkage in the advertising market. So um, again, like fewer, better ads targeted at just the right people, as opposed to buying tonnage and you know hitting everybody. I mean, I watch cable news, and and you know most of the commercials, like I see commercials for people with you know who don't have like good circadian rhythm. Yeah, like I don't know, like I don't know how many people we're, we're going to get. We'll get there in a few years, right? If you yeah. watch if you watch cable TV advertising, they're going to sell you stuff for people who are at least some number of years older than us. Right. Um, because they don't know who we are. But right. you said it would, you said that would shrink the market if they knew, oh, no, no, Peter's 45, so let's not say right. that. But now that said, like this, that means the cost will go up right. because you're, you have more target advertising. problem is it's taken so long to get there, and we're still not even close to that yet. You know, I've, I've spoken to like some of the biggest direct response marketers in the world who say that that kind of addressable TV down to the IP level in the house is too expensive for it to work for them. So it's kind of a bit of the same PNG problem. But they know how to do this for this, this is, Facebook's really good at it, right? Facebook knows exactly who you are. 
They do, but and, they, I, and they deliver that ad targeted to you. It's a banner ad. It's not a. It's not a video. Right, but for the same reason why most advertisers, even though they can buy ads that are one hundred percent viewable, they will settle for ads that are eighty five percent viewable because it brings it down to a cost point that they that fits their media mix model, you know, which is how much money they spend in each particular channel. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I think that the more advanced targeting gets, the more expensive the ads get, and maybe the less willing advertisers are going to pay for it. So it's a bit of a stalemate as far as that goes. So, you know, unless the, the future of, of Jashable TV, unless that, that cost comes down to a point that makes it competitive with untargeted TV, in which case, why do it? We may be at a stalemate, and it may never materialize in the way that we want it to. So you've been talking about ad blockers for a while. You wrote a piece a couple of years ago when Howard Stern mentioned yeah. ad blocking. It was this sort of great moment. You thought it was seismic. Did that? You, and you thought this was a really big deal because Howard Stern live on air saying, "Wait a minute, I can block ads." Yeah, and they literally went step by step. This through is how, how to I do, do it. it. Yes, big big audience. I'm, of course, why wouldn't I do this? By the way, Howard Stern gets paid from an advertiser. Well, he also, but he also and, does and, and subscriptions. He but does he, live reads. He does live reads. Right. Do you think, in retrospect, that moment was as big a deal as you thought it was? I do. I yeah. do. And I, I think that that was a moment where, even if it wasn't enough to get more people doing it as a result, a, a direct result, I think indirectly more it got more media people who listen to Howard Stern, which, by the way, there's a reason why you hear so many, like, Baba Booey's and Hit Him With a Heinz in real life, is because media people who are recording telecasts and calling sports events, you know, they listen to Howard Stern too. So sending something mainstream doesn't mean a lot of people using it at once. It means the people who influence all those people starting to use it yes. more. Um, and so that's a perfect case of saying like, all right, it wasn't necessarily Howard Stern going out and telling everyone to do it, but it was other people raising awareness that, oh crap, this is, this is something that's actually happening. And it just gains, it, that, that's how things go mainstream. So if ad, if ad blocking legitimately is getting more and more mainstream, I, I still don't know really anyone that uses it, but again, I'm old. I do. Um, you do. What does that mean for your business since you're getting paid to get those ads in front of people and people are literally blocking your ads? I think it's great. I, honestly, I think it's it's great for our business. I mean, I, there's, I, again, I want I want to live in a world where where we're making fewer, better ads. Like that, that's where I think our value is. So where everyone else has to chase volume in order to, to keep their business model. And there's a great Clay Shirky quote that I invoke all the time, which is institutions tend to preserve the problems that they're the solution for. So companies that are in the business of selling tons and tons of volume yeah. of advertising are going to spend every waking moment trying to preserve that. They're not going to be thinking about what does our business look like if it's half the size. But when you say fewer, better ads, or that sounds good to you because you can charge more for them. And everyone who has an answer like this is, well, we'll just make the ads more compelling, the ads that people want to watch, right? Or, or use. Or use. Right. But and isn't, isn't, isn't one premise of advertising just like you don't know that you want to watch this. You don't know you want to buy this. We want you to buy this in a year from now. So you're not going to willingly watch this Ford ad because you're not in market for a car right now. So is the answer just make that Ford ad so beautiful, so amazing that everyone has to watch it? I think that's part of it. I just think that the things that people have to watch in exchange for getting to content is going to be a small part of what we're going to be doing for our clients going forward. I don't even think that advertisers in the traditional sense are going to be our main clients maybe four years from now. So I, I, I who, who will be your main client? <laughs> so I've made a bet maybe to myself and it's maybe, I mean, it's a bit of a financial bet in the same way that I'm betting on the Mets to win the World Series this year. I'm not putting any money on it, but I, I do think it's going to happen. That's not really a bet then. No, All right, go on. <laughs> but it's, I am, I'm making a bet because it's time, money, and resources of my company, right? Positioning us for this. Um, that I think by 2020, um, it's very possible that close to 50% of our revenue will actually come from publishers and content rights holders. 
as opposed to um, advertisers in the market to get more consumers to buy stuff. So a publisher or a content rights holder, that's a, what, a music company? It's a, uh, it could be anyone from an entertainment company lo- you know, looking to sell more content to building the brand of their content to a publisher realizing that their branded content studios just are not delivering the return on the investment or they just don't have the overhead to sustain it. Um, I believe that we can build an API that publishers can actually plug into and actually make their ads work better, make the consumer experience better, and deliver better results for advertisers. So instead of getting paid by Pepsi directly, mm-hmm. you're going to get paid by the New York Times who wants to make something for Pepsi? Yeah, maybe maybe for that, but also maybe to build a platform that just makes them better a better destination for all other publishers. So um, you know, we, we did a deal um, with, a, with a company called Dash Radio, which is, you know, they have 8 million monthly listeners, um, pretty big streaming radio service, celebrity DJs. Um, what they weren't doing, they were only providing an audio product to consumers. So we are working with them, and they are paying us to build a video platform where people get to have the video version of everything that's going on as well as original content that's there, something that advertisers are willing to pay a premium for. There's a ceiling on what advertisers are willing to pay from a branded station or a, uh, a live read. But you know the, the demand for video, a relevant video with capital T talent featured in it is still going up. So we're building that offering for them and creating a, another line of revenue for their business. I think we could do that for advertisers. Again, not just through advertising, maybe through product development, but definitely for publishers who, again, are just have to break the cycle that they're in, just constantly keep you know, the pace with the last quarter. I'm a little confused because it seems like if the whole point of publishers is to, uh, building their own studios to say, don't spend the money with Ian, spend it directly with me and we'll get it right to your audience, we'll make it, we'll make it custom for you. For them to come back and go, well, all right, we're going to use Ian to build this stuff. Well, that's what I'm saying. I don't think it's maybe not for the most modern brands that were modern publishers that were built that way. But there's a whole, I mean, universe of publishers that have been around for a very long time, whether they're, you know, uh, magazine brands that people are used to visiting or websites that people yep. know about that are going to be saying, like, how do we compete with a Vox? How do we compete with a BuzzFeed um, when we don't have the infrastructure? And frankly, we don't have a bunch of investors who don't care how much money we made because we're trying to build value for some exit down the line. They don't have that, that kind of luxury. So I think, you know, we can be a, a vehicle to provide them with the same kind of resources that, say, a Vox or BuzzFeed has in many cases, especially especially from a video standpoint, um, that they're not just able to do on their own. So, you know, we're placing a, lo- a lot of attention and investment into building out, you know, the production footprint that we have. Wait, so um, I just really invited, I invited you on my podcast and you explained that you're going to compete with me or my employers? Not, per- not personally. You're coming for my money? Not personally, but there, there, look, there's enough content. Ian. There's enough content everywhere. Okay, Trust me. There's it's great. And this, Vox could be the best. This podcast is the best. You just said there was a cap on what people will read, uh, pay for these live reads we do, so I'm well, a little worried. Well, maybe there will be fewer podcasts going forward because there's... Fewer, better podcasts. Fewer, better podcasts. I like the sound of that. Yeah. I said we would not talk entirely about Trump on every one of these yeah. podcasts, but um, I do want to have a brief presidential conversation. We're in the presence of, of our engineer, Sean, who's smiling at us, who was at the White House last week. He, he, Sean, say hello. I actually don't Sean engineered the last ever interview with Barack Obama, and I wanted to ask him what that was like. Hi, Sean. Hello. Give, this is your two minutes of fame this week. Okay. So the guys who used to do the Keeping at 1600 podcast now have one called Pod Save America. Pod Save America. They did one with Barack Obama, his last interview as sitting president. You got to do this thing in the Oval Office. Well, it was in the Roosevelt Room. I'm sorry. <laughs> Humble brag. We, we went into the Oval Office to take photos after. What is the most surprising thing about going into the White House and recording a podcast? Um, that's a great question. Yeah. Uh, in your mind, you just think it's much bigger and I don't want to say more lavish than it is, but 
you know, it kind of feels like one of the side rooms of like the Metropolitan Museum. It's going to, it's going to, it's going to disappoint Donald Trump. Yeah. It, it, it's not big enough and shiny enough. Well, that's why the first thing he did was change the curtains. And then what was the most interesting thing about meeting former President Barack Obama? He came in, he hugged his friends. Everybody was, you know, I was really kind of the only unknown person there. Did was, you get a hug? I shook his hand. I did not get a hug. And I didn't really realize it until after the fact, but there was a Secret Service agent within 10 feet of me at all times. Because they didn't like the look of you? Well, I think it's just the policy for <laughs> unknowns in the building, but yeah. All right. Awesome. Thank you, Sean. Sorry to take your, your time, Ian, but, <laughs> no, but you have not recorded a podcast with President Barack Obama. I have not. I have not. Well, we'll talk about your famous interviews next time out. Yeah, Deal? Okay. Thank yeah. you for coming. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Thanks to you guys for listening. If you like listening to this, we're glad. Um, we ask a couple things. We ask that you rate us on iTunes. That's cool. We, wait, we ask that you tell a friend about it. You can tweet about it. You can Facebook about it. Thanks to our sponsors, Amazon Web Services and HostGator. Thanks to Digital Media, who sells all those ads. And make sure you guys can listen to this podcast for free with ads. Thanks, guys. If you are listening to this right when it comes out, you've got about two and a half, three weeks to get yourself to Code Media. Well, you were here conversations just like this, intense, smart, interesting, um, with people who matter in media like Eddie Q, who runs media for Apple, Roy Price, who runs video for Amazon. Thanks to you guys. Thanks for listening. We're about a year into this project. I really enjoyed doing it, and I thank you for your support. We'll see you next week. <laughs>